build the best product. I've been involved in the Patagonia field testing program for a little over 20 years right now. For silent sports done in nature. That's the feeling. That's the feeling that I fell in love with with climbing. Cause no unnecessary harm. Of organic cotton and recycled polyester to recycling the clothing to measuring our carbon footprint. Inspire and implement solutions to the environmental crisis. To give some love back to this river that doesn't have any. It's not getting any love. See what drives us at Patagonia.com. With additional support from Kuat Racks and New Belgium Brewing. Love. It's life's great surprise. But beyond that, I know nothing about it. Seriously. I've learned that there is no point in trying to understand it, why it'll work for one couple, and then the seemingly perfect duel, they split apart. It's so beyond me that I stopped trying to guess or understand it. You could chase the science, you could check out the brain chemistry, the serotonin, the melatonin levels, the dopamine, etc., etc., but it wouldn't provide any perspective why a muscle-bound jock will lock himself in his bedroom and spend a weekend making a mixtape of romantic songs from the 1980s, or why a chronically timid person will stand up in a crowded room filled with people and walk across it and introduce themselves to the person of their dreams. This, this stuff is a mystery. From my experience, it is the most powerful emotion, more powerful than even survival instinct. It can be simultaneously obsessively drawing us in and making us terrified of it. It's a wonderful catharsis, but, in my opinion, if you're lucky enough, it can evolve into a deep, quiet stillness of an aspen stand where one tree morphs into the next. Finding it, that's another story. Good luck drawing a roadmap to true love. It might be ready to bite you in the ass, or there's a good chance that you're going to have to sail across the ocean to find it. I do, however, know what makes a great love story. It's a basic equation followed by every romantic comedy Hollywood has ever made. It starts with a brief encounter that sparks an initial interest. This is followed by an awkward, if not comical, attempt to reconnect. The two lovers meet, they fall in love, their relationship grows, and then something goes wrong. There's a period of disconnect where it looks bad for our heroes. And then, in the end, serendipity strikes. And if it's a dirtbag diaries love story, they'll use the same formula, but there's also a good chance that it's going to involve a voodoo doctor Hey, you do what it takes for love, right? Today, we present Be Mine, two stories about finding love. We've wanted to do a Valentine's Day story for years now, but we wanted to find the right stories, and I think we've got them. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you're listening to The Dirtbag Diaries. Anne and Jonah met, like any good dirtbag would hope to, on a ski lift at Snowbowl Resort just outside of Missoula, Montana. You know, we're riding up that lift together, and I started asking Anne questions about, oh, what do you like to do? And, you know, she said she, she was clearly a telly skier, and she liked to rock climb. And You know, the more we talked, the more that I just realized right away that, it's like, wow, this woman is incredible. You know, she's passionate about all the same things that I believe are, are beautiful in the world. I was just sort of um, smitten right from the beginning, you know, and I was like, this is what I want. This is what I'm after. 
And, you know, from the first chairlift, even though there wasn't a lot of practical, I did anything I could do after that to try to be, to be close to her. We, we would go to ski together every now and again. We didn't see each other that much. But, uh, but I lived in a little cabin way up in the Indian Reservation, and we didn't have electricity. We didn't have any running water. It was super rustic. So eventually I get her to come up. And, and what does she do? She passes out. You know, and there I am, so super excited to get this girl I love up to, up to the woods and everything, and, and she sleeps. And it like didn't just happen day. once. It happened at least two or three times. I would just, by the end of the weekend, I was just so relaxed. I thought of him as a friend. I didn't want anything else, though. And I think that's where things started to change. Because we had this period together up at his cabin and where I thought he was my shaman. But as our relationship progressed through the following years, I kind of felt that he really liked me. And he started driving me crazy. And I'd probably have attention span of him for, you know, we could spend maybe a week together on a trip. But beyond that, I didn't want to be around. So I was the one who was sort of pursuing Anne, and, and she did not see our relationship at all, like in that light, you know. And, and I was the sort of guy who was kind of used to that. You know, I, you know, I always struggled dating, you know. I never met anyone like Anne before. And so this one, you know, meant more and I was gonna put more into it. Anne moved to LA for grad school. Jonah stayed in Missoula but they kept in touch. When Jonah traveled to Nepal, he'd make sure that he'd go through LA so that they could take a 10-day trip into the Sierra. Then they'd say goodbye. They'd move on to the task at hand, the path of traveling, of learning, following dreams in a self-propelled and singular fashion. It was in that age when adulthood and the subtleness that growing older brings, it seemed distant, like way out on the horizon. Months would pass without contact, without knowing where the other one was calling home for that moment, or what they were up to. As Anne finished grad school, she was accepted to the Peace Corps. With just a few months remaining until she left, she knew she had to buckle down to get her thesis done. So she went to Michigan to work in her family's small cottage. And there was only me there at the time. And Jonah had been calling me. So, and this is an important one because this is our little shamanic story, right? When I got in touch with him, he had been driving from South Carolina back to Missoula, and he was 10 miles down the road, not knowing where I was, not even knowing that I was in Michigan. And so he came over, and he spent a couple days, and it was great having him there, but I still had that really, that deep down feeling where I knew that he liked me, so he would drive me crazy, and all... All I wanted to do was just work on my thesis project. That was an amazing one where, because again, like we didn't, in those 10 years, like we didn't get to see each other that much. And one, you know, for a encounter to be that serendipitous was, uh, was pretty special. And then I go to the Peace Corps. I end up living on a sailboat for maybe five years, and, um, and Anne went to Peace Corps, and so she was in the middle of the Pacific in an island called Kiribati, and I, I tried really hard to sail to Kiribati, but um, 
you know, sailing is very seasonal and you have to avoid typhoons and, and all these sorts of things. So I ended up not being able to sail to Kiribati, but I sailed to New Zealand. And when she was leaving Kiribati, she went through Fiji and I sailed from New Zealand up to Fiji. And so we met again there. The last couple months were really, really difficult. And I'm telling them about everything that's been going on for the last two years and the last couple months. And I just, you know, kind of released everything to him. And we decided to sail out to a little island out in this bay. And one night we're you know, sitting on the deck watching the sunset. And he's telling me how he's in love with me. And that one day we're going to have a little place together and have a little farm and a little house. And I'm just looking at him, shaking my head, being like, what are we doing here? All I want to do is get off this boat. The next day, I made him take me to shore, and I bought a plane ticket to go home, and I left. And I, I, was, I was done with our friendship. I do admit that even for me, this was like a, a, a low point as a, as a compassionate person, right? Because, you know, I, I spent all my life trying to be a, a loving person and supporting people that I loved, you know? And so I was in a low point in, in my own life. It was just, you know, um, you know, I lived alone on a boat, and, you know, it has its highs and its lows. And... Um, you know, I was probably lonely, and here I was seeing someone I loved, but I didn't have a lot of strength that particular moment in life where I should have been fully supportive of, of Anne and, and the fact that she was going through a hard time. And I was trying to do that, but I couldn't, you know, keep my own energies and my own passions, like, inside as I should have. And I, and I knew, you know, I even knew then. But, you know, I just, I kept talking to myself, oh, this is the right way to talk about it. It was, it was really painful to leave, you know, on bad terms without being able to, to talk it through. You know, we apologized for, for being stressed out and unhappy. But this was one of the, you know, probably the hardest thing that we've been through as a couple as far as, you know, we were, we were just both in, um, in bad places in life and we weren't, we weren't really supporting each other. We didn't, we didn't have the firm ground where we could actually give each other what we needed. We both need totally different things. I kept sailing. A year later, Jonah landed in South Carolina for a wedding. Then he flew to Seattle to meet Anne. They patched things up. They were both in better places. One of the more valuable things that came out of that, other than us just, you know, sort of getting past some of the difficulties we had had in the Pacific. And was had a roommate um, named Mike Kim, and we really hit it off. Um, he really went to bat for for me, you know. And you know, she was dating guys or whatever. And he's like, "Why don't you spend more time with Jonah?" I would just kind of not really listen to him. Jonah went back to go sailing again, and so he would always ask me like, "Where's Jonah now? Where's Jonah?" And I would tell him where he was or if I had heard from him, but he just continuously throughout the next three years would always ask me about him. But Anne was not convinced. So Jonah left again for his sailboat, and Anne continued living in Seattle. He sailed to the Philippines, Japan, Indo-Tanzania, Cape Town, and then a tiny island called St. Helena, 1,100 miles off the west coast of Angola. From there, he sailed 55 days back to South Carolina. And so it's a really long passage from, from Africa to South Carolina. And, 
sort of, you know, I was sort of taking assessment of my life and I'd been sailing for five or six years. And, you know, you can kind of choose to either accept that as a lifestyle because it's, um, it's a pretty peaceful life. If you can make just enough money to get by, then you can, you know, it's easy to maintain a really small boat. And, you know, I really considered maybe like, look, I could do this forever and I could, you know, live alone and, you know, sail around and just sort of eke out and squeak out a, a living. But it didn't, it didn't feel right. And it's like, I, I missed climbing and skiing in cold weather, you know? And I was like, you know, I think I will really, I want to make this happen. I, I really believe in, in making this work with Anne. And, you know, I just, you know, I mean, everything we talked about shows how, how Anne wasn't, wasn't invested in it at all, right? But it didn't dissuade my heart, right? I was always after it. And so I, I sailed into Charleston, you know? I put my boat for sale and uh, I took my brother's truck and I was like, Charles, I'm driving to Seattle. I got to go marry Anne, right? And so, and so I, I had talked to Anne already. I was like, hey, we should go on a climbing trip. You know, for me, it was this like clearly defined thing. I mean, get there and we're going to do this. And Anne's like, well, we can, we, we can, I guess, do something. Like, you know, clearly not that big of a deal, you know. But I'm determined I'm driving across the country. And, and this is really ironic because I happen to drive through Missoula. And my truck breaks down. Or I should say my brother's truck. Right? I drove all the way from South Carolina to Missoula and the bloody truck breaks down within a mile of where I used to live. Meanwhile, I'm supposed to meet Anne in Seattle like the next day. I'm like, God, I'm gonna have to hitchhike. I gotta get to, you know, I gotta, this is important. I wanna get to Washington. And um, coincidentally, I had some friends from Port Townsend who were in Montana and they were driving back. So I called them to see if they were leaving the next day and they're like, yes, but we're not actually going back to Port Townsend or Seattle. We're going up to OMAC for the OMAC Stampede. Like, well, that's close enough. That's, you know, as good as I'm going to get. So pick me up on your way through. You know, I call Anne. I'm like, well, I can't make it to Seattle, but I can make it to OMAC. So you got to, you know, if you'll get the food and this and make a plan and do everything, right, I'll just, you know, you can pick me up in OMAC. Meanwhile. At the time, I went down to Rainier with some friends, telling them, you know, I'm going on this trip with this guy. We don't really have plans, but... He's either going to drive me crazy or I'm going to fall madly in love with him, knowing that that's not going to happen. But Anne goes. She organizes everything for a trip and picks up Jonah and Omac. They decide to backpack into the Satan wilderness, each with their own mindset. All I keep telling myself is, Anne, don't let anything happen. You do not want anything with this guy. You want to just have a good time. He is your friend. You don't want to push those boundaries. And Jonah had gotten advice from a girl on the car trip from Missoula. You just have to let it happen, actually. Let it all lie. During that 10-day trip, something shifted. When Jonah stopped talking about their relationship, Anne was able to see for herself what they shared. Books. The shared quietness of being out together. She felt relaxed around him. They talked a lot about the past, about them. Anne put aside hurdles that she placed around the idea of being in a relationship with Jonah. And she started to see Jonah for Jonah. I kind of started coming around to the idea that I could like him. And he knew how he felt about me. Jonah decided to try Seattle for a while. So Anne invited him into her community to a triathlon then a friend's wedding. And though he didn't know a soul, he was at ease talking with her friends. He made them laugh. In their meetups over the 10 years, it was usually just the two of them. And for the first time, Anne was seeing Jonah through other people's eyes. And she liked what she saw. Hope that soon you'll find me. No one's 
All of a sudden, it went from the theoretical to, to reality, sharing friends and things that we had never been able to do before. You know, we would run together, we'd do all of our outdoor things together, which is exactly what we what drew us together in the first place. And motivating each other to do these things um, together, it's like, well, that's what really makes me feel alive. And that's what I knew I needed in life. And, and it was seamless. Like all of a sudden, it was like we had been doing this for, for the last 10 years. But in reality, it had only been three weeks, an intense start or restart or whatever you might call a building romantic relationship between two people who knew each other so intimately on some levels. So Anne took a night at home to step back from the relationship, to check in with herself and hang with Mike. Mike was like a brother to me, and he saw me with every relationship, and he knew how things were. So Mike sits down, and he says to me, do you know why Jonah is really good for you? And I'm just thinking, oh, Mike, you, you know this answer. Like, just tell me. And he says, Jonah is really good to you. And you need someone who is good to you. And it just made me really warm. And I knew at that moment that this was it. And so after being together for one month, um, and we were camped out by the river, and it was my birthday, and we had a little fire. And before you know it, we were sitting there, and we, we found ourselves engaged. Like, you know, we just sort of got wrapped up in the moment and thinking about the long, and it's like, I love this is all I want in life. You know, we got together in, in August. We got engaged in September, and we got married in the backyard. We had Anne's mom was a, a technical witness and uh, got married by our landlord with Fitz as our only our only spectator um, with the chickens. I would give up incredible amount of things I consider valuable in my life to spend my life with Anne. You know, I wake up every day and I'm just insanely grateful to have to be loved. Part two, voodoo. It started with an application to the Peace Corps. In September 2002, Neil Armstrong was going to Benin, a small country in Western Africa. Before heading there, Neil flew to Philadelphia for the week-long training that all Peace Corps volunteers go through. He mingled with other newly minted volunteers. That first night at dinner, Neil met Laura. She was the free spirit, the hippie-type girl. He was the clean-cut fraternity guy. Obviously opposites. I remember sitting across from her at this table and being like, wow, is this someone that I'm going to meet and is this someone that I could marry? And this cracks me up because I remember this thinking specifically about Laura. But as the night progressed, Neil talked with others and forgot about Laura until she ended up in the same training group in Africa. She quickly became one of my best friends. Uh, we would drink beers together tell jokes together and she quickly became the person that I was hanging out the most with. Our friendship grew, but it really couldn't grow that far, mainly because after two months of being in the training village, we were going to be separated. So uh, friendship never really grew into romance. 
Neil and the other volunteers attended training sessions for their jobs, but also for language, French, and the cultural aspects of Beninese. One of the training sessions one day was about voodoo. And the, the voodoo culture originated in the southern area of Togo and Benin. And during the slave trade times, those folks were then uh, taken and put into slavery in places like the West Indies and Brazil. It has a real cultural relevance in Benin. And pretty much everyone there, they're either Christian or they're Muslim. And as I say, they're Muslim during the day and voodoo at night. And so uh, you would see everyone be practicing some of these uh, aspects of voodoo or animism uh, as part of their life. And so in this training session, there was a voodoo priest there. So we started talking about the voodoo culture as a whole, and he said, one of the things I want to do is I'm going to show you how we take evil spirits out of uh, pregnant ladies. If, if the woman is having difficulty, what they will do is they will draw the evil spirit out and into a chicken. And so... What I'm going to do is I am going to show you how this works, and then the chicken will die and the evil spirit will go away. So, of course, we didn't believe any of this at all. And as we're sitting there, he takes this live chicken, and it had been running around the ground for a little bit. It was perfectly alert and alive, just like a chicken. So the priest first whispers into the chicken's ear and then presses it to the volunteer's belly, whispers to it again, passes it around the volunteer's body two or three times, whispers again, presses it to the belly, passes it two or three times the other way around the body, and then just sets it down. And he said, we have drawn the evil spirits out of the volunteer, and uh, the chicken will now die. And so he continues on with some of his stories. And we, you know, at least I stopped kind of listening to him and started watching this chicken and over the next 15 minutes, it was walking around, and then it just kind of sits down. Then you start seeing it panting a little bit, and it lays down. And then after 15 minutes, all of a sudden, in just these wild, jerky motions, it just kind of flies up off the ground and then falls dead. You know, I, I have a very empirical mind, and I wanted to catch him doing something, but all he did was talk to the chicken and, and then kill it. After two months of training, they received their assignments. Both Neil and Laura had asked for similar qualities from their experience. No running water, no electricity, far from main roads. Neil ended up in a cotton-producing area in northern Benin. It was sub-Saharan. So it was dry, with lots and lots of dust. Laura was two days away, distant by miles and miles of dirt roads on the eastern side of the country. We knew that we were going to keep in touch, but we didn't really know how. You can go to a post office, but it takes forever. The better way to do it is that you go to a taxi driver and give them 25 cents. And magically, somehow, the letter gets passed off from taxi driver to taxi driver until it gets back to the, you know, to the person you're sending the mail to. And so we would write each other long letters, uh, just telling about our experience. And our friendship was growing, but we really couldn't, <clears throat> we really couldn't act on anything. And so uh, she was always my girlfriend on the other side of the country, the ultimate long-distance relationship where I couldn't talk to her for a month or more. And that distance made Neil a little doubtful. Communication was delayed by days, even weeks. 
so it was hard to know exactly if Laura's feelings were growing stronger. But they kept writing and kept meeting up on their breaks. Neil wasn't the only one trying to navigate the pitfalls of love. He'd been listening to his friend Sabi lament about the girl he was chasing, how she kept turning Sabi down again and again. He was a teacher, he didn't have a lot of money, and he needed some way to show her that he was worthy of her love. One day I was sitting in my house and he rolls up on his motorcycle and he's like, Neil, you're coming with me. Like, Where are we going? He's like, he's like, I'm finally going to get her. And so I didn't really know what this meant. So I hop on his motorcycle, we start going down a bigger road, then a smaller road, then we start getting onto small little paths going through forests, and we're going past cotton farms and corn farms. After an hour, they arrived at a farm. The man they were looking for was still in the fields, so they waited in the small mud brick house. And finally, this, this old man, he must have been 60, 70 years old, strong as an ox, he comes in and they start talking. Neil couldn't understand the local language, so he just sat back and watched. And my friend gives him 100 francs, which is about 25 cents. And suddenly the guy wipes off the dirt floor and starts making chicken scratches with two of his fingers. So he's making little hash marks, wiping them out, hash marks, asking a few more questions, hash marks, hash marks, rubbing them out. And then my friend says, okay. And he's like, okay, Neil, let's get up and go. And I said, whoa, what just happened there? Well, what did, what did he say? He's like, well, uh, in order to get this girl to marry me, uh, I'm going to have to make a sacrifice. I need to go back to the village. I need to buy the purest white chicken I can find, tie up its feet, take it into the shower. And the showers we took were bucket showers, and so you'd get a large pail of well water and then a, and then a bucket, and you can shower with that. And then I have to wash my entire body with this live chicken. And once I have fully washed myself with this chicken, I'm to let it go. And then she will marry me. And so I'm like, this is fascinating. So I said, can I do it? I, I have this girl that I want to marry me. And I don't know where this is going. So I pay him 100 francs. And the guy starts making his hash marks. He's rubbing them out, hash marks. He says, okay, this is what you're going to do. You're going to make a sacrifice as well. What I need to do is I'm going to buy a kilo of sugar, and over the course of the day, I have to sacrifice the sugar by giving it to anyone I see. And so I went back to my village, and I bought a kilo of sugar, and then as I walked around, I saw people, I greeted them, and I said, would you like sugar? And they looked at me strangely, and I would hand them a handful of sugar, and in a couple hours, I had sacrificed or given away all my sugar. Even as I'm telling this story about voodoo and about sacrifice, people have more of like the movie version in their mind about what sacrifice is and what voodoo is. When we hear about it, we think about about the killing, about the blood. You're gonna, you know, you're gonna kill a goat, and that's the sacrifice. But really, in that culture, what the sacrifice is is that things such as chicken and goats and sugar 
these are these are money to them. They don't have enough money to often buy chickens, yet that's what the sacrifice is, is that you have to buy it, use it for this reason, and then you have to let it go for love or for, for health, whatever that is, and you can't have it anymore. It's not about violence or blood or you know any kind of dark magic. It's just simply that you need to give up something in order to receive something. So did Sabi's sacrifice work? She, he was after her for months, and she said no. And all the reasons that she said no hadn't changed. But all of a sudden, uh, maybe it was persistence, and maybe it was him washing himself with a pure white chicken. But in a couple months, uh, she had said yes, and they got married. And Niels? Well, Niels says it's already seemed promising. At that point when... Uh, I talked to talked to the old man was when I decided that I wanted to marry her, but I actually didn't tell her until I got married. At that point, that internally was my commitment to wanting to marry her. After he and Laura were done with Peace Corps, they moved back to the States together. But he didn't tell Laura what he'd done, not until four years later. I didn't want to jinx it. I, di- I didn't want to tell her. I didn't want to tell family, but then... It might, it might have been the wedding week that I finally decided to tell her, tell everyone, and she was as shocked as the rest of them. Maybe it was, it was voodoo and magic for me as well, but uh, yeah, we're married and we have a beautiful two-year-old. Many thanks to Anne, Jonah, and Neil for sharing their stories of love. I will never forget Anne and Jonah's wedding. It was such a wonderful knock to receive on my door, inviting me over to watch a wedding. So cool. Music today by the immortal Tony Bennett, former Utopia Bradley Carter, New Buffalo, Angelique Kijo, and Sean Hayes. You can download the tracks for free at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. The drives would not be possible without support from the good people at Patagonia. Their Common Waters campaign is about balancing human water use with the rest of the planet. They've turned an eye on their business practices and are committed to reducing water pollution from textiles. Learn more at Patagonia.com. Support for the show comes from Kuat Racks, makers of a better bike rack. Their design team bikes a lot to give you clean lines and well-designed products. You can see their full lineup at kuatracks.com. I'm Fitz Cahal, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Happy Valentine's Day. Every bird.